The Wicked Smart Sportscast is brought to you by SunmaxBatteries.com, the go-to website for all your battery needs. Sunmax Batteries carries a full line of super heavy-duty ultra-alkaline lithium and button cell batteries. Sunmax Batteries compares in quality to well-known national brands, and the best part, Sunmax Batteries are priced much lower than their competitors. Flashlights, remote controls, gaming totes, headphones, digital cameras, hanging rings, smoke alarms, whatever device you need a battery for, Sunmax Batteries has the best batteries at the best price for your device. Guys, Halloween is right around the corner, okay? It's like 10 days away, all right? And if your decorations run out of batteries on Halloween, you're going to look like a loser to the little kids trick-or-treating, okay? And you don't want to look like that to the little kids, all right? Because little kids can be mean, all right? And they'll be mean to you. So order a 24-pack of AA or AAA heavy-duty batteries for only $5.99 so you're stocked up to replenish your decorations with batteries when you need to or a 24-pack of Ultra Line, ideal for all kinds of gaming high-tech devices at just $12.99. And you can order today in coupon code BOSTON at checkout. That's BOSTON, all uppercase, and save 20% off your entire order. That's coupon code BOSTON at checkout to save 20% off the already low prices at sunmaxbatteries.com, CELMXBatteries.com, the official sponsor of the Wicked Smart Sports Guys. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Wicked Smart Sports Guys podcast. Thanks, as always, to Dolly Dreams for the intro music. The NBA season is less than 48 hours away. And the Celtics will be playing in less than 72 hours. And here to do one final Celtics season preview before the opener from the Celtics Center and the Celtics Center podcast, it's Adam Taylor making his first appearance on the podcast. Adam, how are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. You know, I'm great, Adam. Basketball is just two days away. And quite frankly, there's always something missing in my life when NBA basketball isn't being played, at least in the regular season. Preseason's fine, but it's nothing like regular season NBA basketball. The only thing that I don't really feel great about going into this season is, do you know what the first game of the NBA season is? What the kickoff game is? The game, the league decided, this is how we want to open the season. This is how we want to get everyone excited. Do you know which two teams are doing that this year? Dude, I've been focused solely on Celtics. I cannot tell you. The Raptors and the Zion Williamson-less Pelicans. Now, I'm not going to be too hard on the league because the Raptors won the championship and usually the champion plays on opening night. So that's fine. And if Zion was healthy, this would be okay. It'd be an okay matchup. But the headliners for this game, right now as it stands, are Kyle Lowry and Drew Holiday. And don't get me wrong, I love me some Kyle Lowry and Drew Holiday. I love this game. But it's certainly not one of the marquee matchups you could have picked in the league. It's certainly not the one I'd prefer to see opening night. I'll see it, you know, on a random Tuesday in December. But opening night, first game, you're going Kyle Lowry and Drew Holiday. So it's not entirely the league's fault because there were some injuries there and stuff like that. But, you know, the nightcap is Lakers-Clippers, and that will be, for all intents and purposes, the real game of the night. But the very first game doesn't have the level of excitement you, generally speaking, would hope for. I can agree completely. Zion going out has been a huge hit for the Pelicans in general, but for the league as well, everybody wants to see what the number one pick can do. It feels like we're just going to have to wait that bit longer now. Yeah, it's clear they were really banking on him coming through and being that guy everybody wanted to see in the first game. And, you know, the Pelicans at least put the Raptors against one of their division rivals, you know, someone like the Celtics or Sixers, and that can create some buzz, even with Kawhi Leonard gone. But the Pelicans without Zion, it's just not what you want. But I'll enjoy it nonetheless. Now, we came here to talk about the Celtics, and we're going to do so. We're going to get into some general season preview stuff, which is the really fun part. But we have to start with the big news over the last few weeks here, which is Jalen's extension talks. They have until Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern time to get a deal done. And right now, 
it does seem like they're not going to have a deal done by that deadline. That's just the sense I get. What are your current thoughts on the negotiations between Jalen and the Celtics? For all intents and purposes, I feel like Jalen's banking on himself to earn a larger deal at the end of the season. I can understand why Boston are trying to tie him down now. It doesn't. I feel this is more of a goodwill gesture in the terms of they don't want Brown to go into free agency feeling like, well, they didn't even offer me an extension. Did they really want me here? I don't see anything happening before the end of the uh, deadline for them. I don't feel that he's earned it yet just off the back of a few preseason games to be asking for more money. If he performs for the year the way he did through preseason, which is hard to tell, preseason's never a great indicator of what's going to happen through the season, then maybe he can earn it. And he's definitely going to get a larger offer in free agency anyway. It just depends on where the Celtics are drawing the line in the sand on what they'd be willing to match. Yeah, I mean, the reason I say I don't think they will is because I think it's pretty evident that Jalen's talent and potential kind of exceed his production. And that kind of goes to what you're saying about he thinks he's worth more than their offer and he thinks he's worth more than he's proven to this point. And it can be very, very difficult to negotiate with players like that. It's hard for teams to pay someone only based on potential. That's what the Timberwolves did with Andrew Wiggins. And that's ended up really coming back to bite them. So I also don't expect something to happen because the Celtics went through this with Marcus Martin. They went through this with Terry Rozier. And they couldn't get either for the number they wanted. So they didn't sign them. And I think in both cases, they were right. They, they went with Marcus Smart and they ended up getting him for the same or a similar at least amount of money to what he wanted at the time. And Terry Rozier ended up being not worth the money anyway. So I think that emboldens them to say, Jalen, prove to us you're worth it this year and we'll talk next summer. Another aspect that I've been kind of preaching on the podcast is it also enables Jalen to have to be given no choice but to improve. So as you talk about Andrew Wiggins, the guy got the contract extension and his production kind of fell off a cliff. His progression just halted. Now, we all know that NBA progression is not linear. You're going to have your up moments and your down moments. But once you sign that big contract, your reason to need to improve is kind of dampened a little bit. So unless you're a really hungry guy, some of these guys are just hungry for improvement. And I'm not saying Jalen isn't, but by having another year to have to have to fight for that contract and really push to earn those extra few million that he thinks is worth isn't actually going to be a bad thing for him nor the team long term yeah I think that's a good point especially with what we saw last season with a lot of people saying Jalen and Jason didn't really improve and they regressed a little bit at least from where they were in the playoffs that their numbers weren't so bad when you compare them to the regular season before but a lot of people said they didn't improve much and I think that's a good point that maybe if Jalen it doesn't get his extension here. He's motivated that extra bit more, and he can improve this season. And, you know, a team, speaking of Jalen's free agency now, if he does enter restricted free agency, a team could always come out of the woodwork and offer him some crazy contract if they really want to get him away from Boston. We've seen situations like that play with, like, Malcolm Brogdon. They resulted in trades. Could that happen with Jalen? I don't know. But the question is, if there is a team interested in Jalen, who will it be? So, I mean, the Knicks and Raptors are teams... That look like they'll have enough cap space to make a run on them, but I, I think they have other plans with their money. The teams that the Celtics, to me, should really be worried about are the Grizzlies, the Hornets, and the Cavaliers. Particularly those last two, the Hornets and the Cavaliers. We know the Cavaliers have shown interest in Jalen in the past in those Kyrie Irving negotiations. They could use him on the wing next to Sexton and Garland if that's going to be their backcourt moving forward. I think he's a nice fit there, especially youth-wise and just, you know, skill set-wise. And with the Hornets, Jalen appears to have had a good relationship with Terry Rozier. Even last season, they still appear to be pretty close despite all the turmoil going on with the team. So if I were the Celtics, 
those would be the teams I'd be concerned about offering Jalen a contract for more than maybe he's worth to them. Oh, I completely agree. I've actually been raving about the Cavaliers' ability to clear up close to 60 million, I think it was, in cap space at the end of this year. So they're going to be able to offer a contract astronomically higher than what the Celtics are going to be willing to match. And as you say as well, playing alongside Garland and Sexton, sorry, Garland and Sexton, that's going to be a really scary and athletic young core. They're probably, in my eyes, the biggest threat to the Celtics in terms for Jalen at the moment. Obviously, there's always a team that you don't really figure to be in the mix that will pop up with some crazy offer. But Cleveland's a scary proposition, especially if he decides that he wants the money more than he wants the continuity with the team. The Hornets, again, as you say, he's got, he did seem to have a good relationship with Terry Rozier. But they're serial underachievers, and Jaden strikes me as a guy that would rather go to a situation where he can compete and, in the end, challenge. You've seen, uh, unfortunately, Charlotte has this ineptitude when it comes to putting contenders on the floor. So I feel like that does go against them in any free agent discussions. Yeah, I guess that's true. But I do wonder, I mean, if Jalen leaves, ultimately, it's not going to be motivated by winning, right? He can win here more than he can really win anywhere else as far as teams that can really offer him money outside of the Raptors. But I don't think that's happening unless something with OG on an OB falls through and they don't resign Kyle Lowry. Like, they need to have all these thing, things go a certain way to even have the money. And I don't know if they would even have the interest. So any team that we're talking about here, the Grizzlies, you know, the Cavs, the Hornets, it, they're not going to be able to win the same way the Celtics were. Now, you know, eventually will those teams get there if their young cores blossom? Yeah, sure. But at the end of the day, this is a numbers-motivated move for Jalen. If, if he's going to one of these places because he wants to be a star. And, you know, on teams like the Cavaliers and the Hornets, where they don't have that same star power the Celtics have, he'll have the opportunity to do that. And if he doesn't feel like he has the opportunity here, then that'll be where the decision comes, right? It won't be about winning. It'll be about, I want to be the guy, and I can be the guy here, and I can't be the guy in Boston because Jason's ahead of me, Gordon's ahead of me, Kemba's ahead of me, and I'm never going to get that opportunity here. I've seen people recommend trading Jalen. On Twitter the other day, I brought up the idea of the Celtics trading for Sabonis, and a lot of people said they should trade Jalen for Sabonis, and I would sign Jalen to a max contract before I traded him straight up for Sabonis. And I like Sabonis. But that's just not an even trade. You know, Romeo Langford in the Memphis pick is a lot too, but I could be talked into that. But uh, I can't be talked into Jalen. You know, Jalen for Sabonis straight up, I just don't think that's fair value. I don't think Danny Ainge is going to do it. And even if he can't come to an agreement with Jalen, I-, I just don't see him wanting to make that deal. I don't feel like it's a good trade. Uh, I'm the same as you. Sabonis is a great guy. Uh, you see he's a good locker room guy. He's one of the best young bigs in the league. He's not a Jalen Brown caliber player though, in terms of where he can progress to. Jalen Brown can be a legitimate star in the league. Sabonis is good, don't get me wrong, but as you say, it'd be much easier of a pill to swallow if it's like a guy like Romeo Langford and pick. I also like to kind of stress here that with the team being hard capped, I feel like any move the team's interested in making is under so much more scrutiny because there's such less room for maneuverability if a player gets injured or if somebody a big star comes available later in the year, they'll have less of an opportunity to chase him if they've made that trade now using a guy like Jalen or Romeo or picks for a guy of Sabonis' level. All right, well, by the time a lot of people listen to this, we'll know one way or another how those negotiations ended up. But for now, we'll wait and see. I want to talk about setting some expectations for two players. First, Gordon Hayward. What are your expectations for Gordon Hayward this season? Uh, If we're talking realistic, then 
probably in a percentage wise, it's going to be like 80% of what he was at Utah. I actually wrote this for Hoops Habit recently when I was saying his athleticism through preseason seems to be pretty much where it was pre-injury. His shot still looks like it's a little bit rusty, needs a bit more work. Maybe his legs just aren't underneath him enough yet. He's driving more. He's dunking more. He's making better passes. He's managing to run the floor better to get back on D. He's rotating well. Maybe a fringe all-star in the East. I don't think that's too much of a stretch if he's playing at a good level around about that 80% of his Utah days. He is the X factor for the team, basically. If he plays at that level, then I don't feel like we're actually too far removed from the top tier of the Eastern Conference. You know, I'm just going to come out and say it. The expectation for Hayward should be that he returns to All-Star or borderline All-Star form. And, and I'm sorry, but that's just the way it has to be. I, I understand he had a horrific injury, and he, you know, but he's had a year to readjust to the NBA, and he needs to get back to being All-Star Gordon Hayward if the Celtics are going to have a real chance to compete. You know, when you have a player that's making that much money, no matter what, he needs to produce at a high level, and expecting him to do so shouldn't be considered unfair. Now, now at this point, at least. You know, it shouldn't be because he's had that year, like I said, of, of reps to kind of get used to the NBA again, get back up to speed. And last year, it would have been a bit unfair to say that. It was different last year. But this year, the Celtics need him to play like Utah Gordon Hayward. Or at least you said 80%. I'm going to say at least 90% Utah Gordon Hayward. Yeah, 80%, 90%. I don't feel like there's much difference between the two in terms of um, statistical production, uh, box score production. I feel like that extra 10% will be his high-flying ability, his ability to do those backdoor cut alley-oops that unfortunately actually caused the injury. Uh, but yeah, we do need him. He's a max contract guy. He's coming into a player option at the end of the year. And if he wants to be around Boston next year, if he's um, considering opting in, which could be a poison pill, which I'll get to later if we want to discuss that is he has to play well. Otherwise, he's going to opt in and be a hated figure around the Celtics next year. We've gave him enough rope now where, as fans where we've understood the, the teething problems coming back from injury. Everybody was patient with him last year. This year, it's a, a do or die. You have to prove yourself. You have to perform at a close to all-star level. Otherwise, you're an absolute bomb of a trade and it's just going to become, a, in about five years' time, we're just going to look back at it as a disaster. Yeah, and, and you make a good point. And the real juxtaposition of it is that if Hayward doesn't return back to form, back to all-star form, this becomes one of the worst contracts in the NBA. And it's not – the difference between this and most bad contracts is that this isn't anybody's fault necessarily. It's not Danny Ainge's fault. It's not Gordon Hayward's fault. An injury happened, and, you know, that, effect, that changed everything, right? But the fact of the matter is that it still remains one of the worst contracts in the NBA if he doesn't get back to this level. And that's why I say he does. That's why I say he has to. because. You can't have a contract on your books like that and still compete for a championship or, you know, even compete for a conference finals berth. That just, you, you're unable to do that. It inhibits it, you know, it, it prevents you so much from doing what you want to do. This is where I lead on to the poison pill. I mean, as you say, you do need one, your free, you have free max slots, essentially. Having one of your max guys performing at such an underperformance level where he's performing as a rotation player, but taking max money, is a recipe for failure. You're going to be doomed to purgatory. As a poison pill, do options. I spoke to um, Tom Westerholm about this recently, and the options we basically laid out were he could perform exceptionally well, 
to the point where he decides to opt out of his player option and test the free agent market as one of the bigger names to try and get a bit more long-term security. He could play terribly and opt in. Or, and then this is the ideal scenario, he returns to all-star form and wants to repay the faith of the Celtics fans and the organisation and ups in next year where we have a legitimate all-star next to Kemba Walker and in my eyes an emerging all-star in Jason Tatum. And yeah, that last one is what everybody's hoping for. And if he does play well, I would hope he would opt in. I mean, you know, I think everybody at this point is kind of hoping that he does opt out. You know, I hope Hayward just plays well enough to opt out. If he plays well enough to opt out, you want him to opt in because that means he's back to the form you want him to be in. And I want to stress to people that we're not saying Hayward, like we're not trying to be hard on Hayward. We're taking emotion out of it. We're just talking about statistically speaking, numerically speaking, you can't be paying a guy that much money and have him perform the way he performed last year. You can't do it. And that's why the Celtics need to return to all from. No, and this is where it gets really hard. As you say, we are taking emotion out of this. We're looking at this from a completely analytical perspective. He has to perform. If you're a max guy and you're playing at role player levels, then you may as well go throw that sort of money at a Terry Rozier type player that can fill it up in bunches for 20% of games he plays, and then he's anonymous for the other 80%. Because that was the Gordon Hayward we got last year. We had flashes of the old Hayward. And each time that happened, everybody was hyped. Gordon's, we can see he's coming back. He's turned a corner now. This is what and in the next five games, he was anonymous. If that's the case, then yeah, he, the fans will be calling for a trade or for him to opt out. The optics of a trade with Hayward are terrible in the terms of after the Isaiah trade, Boston has this bad air around them in terms of Oh, if you're not performing, even if they've committed to you, they'll move you on. So I understand the team's reluctance to explore that avenue. But no, there's no other way, no nice way to say he needs to perform to justify the money that he's going to make this year because there was no more excuses. Okay, the other guy I wanted to set expectations for was Kemba Walker. You know, I feel like Walker has kind of flown out of the radar in the past month or so. I feel like he hasn't been talked about as much as the best player on a team like the Celtics typically would be talked about. So let's talk about him. How about that? What are your expectations for Kemba Walker this season? Dude, I love Kemba Walker, man. He, I expect his points production to slightly decrease due to his usage, rate, usage rating decreasing. However, I expect his assist rating to go up by maybe one to two, at a push three assists per game, just because he's a very high pick and roll usage player. And this time now, he's not going to be expected to score off those pick and rolls. He's going to have driving dish opportunities. He's going to have more off-ball opportunities. So I'd expect him to have another all-star year. The only difference being he's going to be facilitating a lot more than he's used to just because he has the players around him that are able to make those shots. Yeah, I agree with most of that. I, I mean, I'm going to phrase it a different way. I guess the biggest thing I expect from Kemba, outside of the scoring and the all-star team and stuff like that, is I expect him to handle this situation a lot better than Kyrie did. And it's, it's unfair to Kemba to keep mentioning Kyrie's name. So I'm going to stop. I'm not going to mention Kyrie's name again because I hate the fact that he gets compared to him so much and it feels like we can only talk about Kemba. We, we have to talk about Kyrie. We should really stop doing that. So I'm done doing it for the rest of this podcast. I expect Kemba to come in and be willing to subjugate himself and be more willing to take a secondary role at times. I expect him to prioritize winning over personal goals. I don't expect him to have no personal goals, but... Coming from a situation that he did in Charlotte, I would expect he's done with the putting up numbers and losing thing and wants to come here and win first and foremost. That's the biggest thing I expect from Kevin Walker. Care about winning and honestly, care about your teammates succeeding a little bit too. 
I mean, it's well documented, isn't it, that he actually, when he first joined the team, he took all of the team out to dinner on his own dime um, just because he wanted to build that relationship with those guys. He is very much the anti-Kyrie, which is exactly what this team needed. I'm going to follow your suit and not mention that guy's name for the rest of the podcast. But it's true. He wants to build a relationship with these guys. He wants to get the camaraderie. And it feels very much like a Celtics team two years removed where they were that close-knit. They were willing to go to war for each other every night. Heads don't drop when the game gets tough. They're going to fight for every loose ball. And we saw that to an effect when he was on the court during preseason. He was one of the first guys to get to the on the guy on the ball. He was talking. He was driving his player, his teammates to do better. The only worry I have for him is that he's not got any experience playing with players of this level regularly. So that may take an adjustment period. I don't want him to feel like um, he has to defer too much. Because there's a difference between being able to pass the ball when when there's an open shot somewhere else or passing the ball for the sake of passing the ball. Yeah, that is such an excellent point. Yeah, and that is that is probably going to take an adjustment period for sure. But, you know, I guess the hope would be that they can figure it out right away and they have a chemistry. It's, it, you know, it, it depends, really, with each player, how quickly they can adjust. And the hope is that you see UConn Kemba Walker. That's what we all want to see. You know, ultimately, the reason Kemba Walker came to Boston is to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to win and be an all-star. And his chances of doing both of those things are a lot better in Boston than they were in Dallas or LA. So hopefully he can successfully balance those two things and the Celtics can win a lot of games. All right, let's move on. What do you expect from the team as a whole this season? Wherever you want to go with that, you know, seeding, play style, whatever. So I always tend to shy away from projected win totals just because you can end up with egg on your face in a few months' time. Uh, we, I did that last year and it was a terrible exercise in futility yeah you so, talk about 67 wins from bill simmons is that what you're talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean it happens right you everybody got caught up in the hype last year al horford jason tatum the man that shall not be named for the rest of this podcast it it all happened and then everything kind of crumbled so this year from my perspective and what we spoke about on my own podcast is it's more play style it's returning to find an identity because last year that, that didn't exist and it's been a major theme throughout the start of this year is they're finding their identity again as long as i see a team that hustles that are jumping for loose balls that are closing out on d making sure they get their rotations correct making sure they execute plays correctly and they're trying to find the open man instead of looking for individual shots no more mid-range twos that's jason tatum and anybody else no ill-advised freeze. If you see that and they play a co- as a cohesive unit, then you can be looking at a surprise playoff run deep into the playoffs. So that's kind of what I'm looking for, more of an identity building than any one individual aspect. Expect them to play as hard as they did in the 2018 NBA playoffs. That's the first thing. Expect them to kind of re-embrace that underdog mentality that they've played so well with in the past, right? And, you know, ultimately... Show the NBA that they are still one of the marquee teams, one of the best winning organizations in the league, and that they can compete for a championship. You know, numbers-wise, I expect them to end up with around 54 or 55 wins. And at the very least, leave Boston and the NBA feeling like they gave Milwaukee or Philadelphia all they had, and if not going beyond that and beating them. You know, last year, everyone came out of the season feeling like the Celtics left something on the table. Leave people feeling like you gave it everything you had, that you didn't feel leave anything on the table. 
that's what you should expect from the Celtics this season. Here's a hot take. I feel like um, the Celtics actually match up with the Sixers very, very well. Uh, the Sixers seem to me like they're an oversized team. And I feel like the Celtics, with their versatility across the board, are going to be able to utilize some mismatches in terms of shooters on bigs quite regularly. I'm really excited to see how they exploit the size difference to their advantage in the, the first game next week. We'll get to the Philadelphia game in just a bit. I want to do best and worst case scenario too. So I'll start with this one and then you can do yours. But I think it's pretty straightforward. I think the best case scenario is that Gordon Hayward and Jason Tatum emerge as all-stars or just miss out on being named all-stars. Jalen Brown doesn't quite get to that level, but becomes more consistent both offensively and defensively, and they patch together the center position well enough that there are no complaints. You know, as an S. Cantor's defensive deficiencies don't matter because they have so many other great defenders around him on the floor, and his rebounding just fixes that whole problem the Celtics have had for years. They haven't had no one who can rebound, and he completely fixes that. Or Robert Williams emerges and becomes one of the top 15 defensive big men in the league and fixes that rebounding problem himself. So, I mean, that team could win almost 60 games and make a run on a title. Worst case is they deal with a lot of the same problems as they did last season. You know, Jalen and Jason turn out to be bigger issues in the locker room and on the court than we all thought, and bigger parts of the problem than we all thought. You know, there are more problems sharing the ball, and everyone's still unhappy with their roles and their shots, and we see a slightly worse version of last year's team that ends up being a 7 seed and losing in 4 or 5 to Philadelphia. So, those are two drastically different outcomes. I'm not predicting either. That's best and worst case scenario, obviously. But I think both are possible with this Celtics team after what we experienced last season. So, like I said, obviously best and worst case scenario. I'm not predicting either of those things to happen. But generally speaking, outside of injuries or anything like that, that's what you're looking at as the range for this team. Your best case scenario is almost exactly the same as mine. The only difference would be that Jalen Brown actually contends for a most improved player spot. I actually don't think that's a stretch. If his left hand is as good as what it looked to be through preseason, then he's going to be a nightmare on both sides of the court instead of being hedged right every time he's got the ball. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go exactly with what you said as a best-case scenario. Worst-case scenario is similar. It's going to be that guys like Gordon Hayward just show no progression from last year. Kemba Walker struggles to integrate himself into the offensive schemes. Jason Tatum reverts back to a Kobe-esque long two-shooter. And Jalen Brown shows no sign of improvement. I mean, his defense has been suspect for a while in terms of rotations. That's going to be a major talking point for me, personally, through the start of the year, to see how he handles getting switched on on defensive end because he struggles. And it will be that exactly where the team just failed to figure out exactly what destroyed them last year outside of the chemistry issues. And like you say, they're a seventh seed and they get bounced in the first round. All right. Well, let's talk about the opener against Philadelphia real quick. So what are your thoughts on that game? I know you already mentioned some some stuff from that game, but you know, what are your thoughts on the game and, and what are you looking forward to seeing the most from these two teams? Well, first of all, I'm not looking forward to seeing him play up against Al Horford, a big Al Horford fan. I don't resent him for what he's done. He's done something for his career. So Power to you. I hope that you succeed, but I hope that you don't beat Boston. Um, I'm expecting to see sort of a precursor to what we're expecting to see later in the season, close towards the playoffs. In that, in terms of we're going to see Ben Simmons matching up against a guy like Kemba. We're going to see Jason Tatum matching up. I want to see how we deal with um, Joel Embiid on the defensive end, what big we use, what type of hockey rotation do we go with. 
Are we going to be using Vincent Poirier to try and deal with him? Are we going to be using Daniel Tice and hoping that he's stretching the, the ability to stretch the floor enables driving lanes? Or are we going to be using a guy like Cantor to try and just grab boards? So that's going to be the key battle for me. He's going to be down low. I'm also, as I said, I feel like Philly are quite oversized. They seem to have gone completely against the grain in this team construction this year. So I'm just very, no individual matchups, more along the lines of how are we going to attack them? How are we going to scheme to stretch their defense out so we have driving lanes? How are we going to deal with their bigs in the paint? And that's going to be a precursor to how we deal with teams like Detroit, how we deal with Milwaukee. It's all going to be very similar on how we plan on scheming around their big men. Seems we don't have one very, very good interior defender. We have a multitude of guys that are okay in different aspects. Hey, you could always just put Marcus Smart on Joel Embiid, right? And, you know, Paul Millsap style, put put him on and see if it works. Um, I'm not actually averse to that. I I will say this. um, I want to bring this up because you mentioned Ian Al Al Horford at the beginning there. I want to run this by you because this is kind of how I feel about the Al Horford situation. I feel like as a result of him leaving, his professionalism in turn comes off as rather than professionalism, it comes off you know, a little bit disingenuous because he talked about how much he loved Boston and how much he loved being here and all this stuff he loved about it. And if that was all true, then why did you leave? And, you know, I I understand uh, that both can be true. It can be professional and disingenuous, but I feel like the latter kind of shines through more so after he's leaving and it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I was actually quite lucky here. I spoke to um, Anna Horford about a very, about this, uh, worded it a little bit differently, but the, the kind of topic was the same and the response I got back and she's probably one of the closest sources you can get from the decision-making aspect here was that he felt like his position on the team had become a little bit untenable with Kyrie. Obviously Kyrie was leaving, but Al felt like the, the roster makeup wasn't one that could realistically cause Kemba hadn't happened yet. So there was no realistical way of challenging for a title and without aging he felt like his best opportunity now was to move on to another team to try and contend and you have to understand if he he is that much of a professional then he is going to want to finish his career with a chip he didn't see that happening in Boston so we moved elsewhere the only thing that really hurt and that really left a sour taste was he chose to go to the Sixers yeah, that, that does change how I look at it a little bit. But I, I do still have to say, you know, and I understand the aspect of it that has been talked about of hey, things did change a little bit for Al once he saw Kemba was coming, but he had already promised his word to Philadelphia and he wasn't going to go back on his word. And that kind of speaks to his professionalism, that he that he is a guy like that who doesn't want to, you know, back out of a deal. And it kind of speaks to a larger point of tampering, which the league is trying to, you know, come down on that maybe if the Celtics you know, hadn't had the tampering and maybe tampering if it wasn't an issue and the Celtics could have negotiated with Kemba before Al got a chance to talk to the Sixers or not talk to the Sixers, however that's supposed to be phrased, then maybe things would have gone differently. But at the end of the day, you know, everyone kind of was speeding. So you can't blame, you can't yell at someone else uh, for for doing the same thing as you were. But um, getting back to the game, the game specifically, you know, I'm definitely interested in seeing how Philadelphia's height impacts their defense, which is something you brought up. And I wanted to focus on with Kemba Walker in certain situations because, I mean, you mentioned the switching and that's going to be a big thing too. But, you know, I wonder about the matchup with Josh Richardson because I think Josh Richardson, he's a good defender and should be able to stay with Kemba. But obviously he's guarded twos and threes most of his career. And, 
there is a speed mismatch there, and he's going to be asked to guard a lot of opposing point guards all season for Philadelphia. So I want to see how that looks uh, in, in game one against a point guard like Kemba, who's going to be so difficult for anybody to guard. Um, you know, Philadelphia is going to be monstrous defensively, so they're going to be amazing. But if there's one thing that they can't do, it might be that guarding the smaller players, as, as you talked about. Uh, I want to see how they play with Horford and Embiid and how often they use those two together as opposed to staggering them. And I'm really eager to see what the Celtics rotation and shot distribution looks like, because that's something I've talked about a lot this offseason and heading into the season. I think that's one of the keys to the season and for them, you know, feeding their best players and keeping them happy. And, you know, I want to see how that looks against Philadelphia, a really good team where you do need your stars to have big games to win. Shot distribution is a really good topic to bring up, actually. Um, it's one of those things that's hard to project until we've seen a large sample size through the season. In terms of how monstrous they're going to be on defense, I do believe that. I feel like they're going to be a really hard team to score on on the interior. I think when you look at them from the perimeter, they actually look quite flawed in the sense that they're, gonna, they're not going to want to bring Joel Embiid out of the paint. They're not going to want to let um, a guy like Al Horford too far above the low helpline. And then, as you say, you've got Josh Richardson that's not really battle-tested defending point guards. He's going to get put in a ton of pick-and-rolls by Ennis Cantor that's going to either roll to the rim or we're going to have Daniel Tice that's going to decide to fade back to the three-point line. They're really going to, I feel like they're going to struggle to keep up with the perimeter threats that we have, which I get it. We're probably not going to get many, too many free drives to the lane, but I feel like we are going to get quite a few open shots in the free, at which point then you can project your shot projection to be like, um, shockingly, it might be Marcus Smart. Jason Tatum's going to get his shots. I feel like Gordon Hayward's going to have one of them games where he facilitates a lot, which will allow Kemba to get some shots up. It is going to be really interesting to see how they scheme to get the perimeter shots because driving into the lane against this team is just not going to be the best course of action. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, we, when we've seen the Celtics play the Sixers in the past, and a lot of teams play the Sixers before this year, the game plan was attack J.J. Redick. Post up J.J. Redick, just run offense at J.J. Redick all, all you know, game long. And the reason that was the game plan so much was because that was their weakest spot. And a lot of their other spots were really strong. You know, Ben Simmons is a pretty good defender for what he's worth. And Embiid and Horford are going to be really good defenders. So now the guy to attack on that, off, on that you know, Philadelphia starting lineup is, you know, Tobias Harris, who's, you know, not a great defender, but he's still better than J.J. Redick was. So, I mean, I think the fact that they have, like, they don't really have a mismatch, you know, as far as you talk about, yeah, they're going to have trouble with bigger guys going starting smaller guys, but they're never going to have, you know, someone posting up J.J. Redick again. That's not a situation they're going to have unless, you know, when T.J. McConnell's on the floor, it's a different story. But at least when they have their best five guys on the court at the end of the game, at the beginning of the game, they're going to be really hard to score on. Oh, for sure. That's why I'm saying um, from my perspective, it's going to be more perimeter-based. There's going to be horn sets being run where they're hitting the guy that rolls back into the perimeter free. There's going to be probably pick-and-rolls, double pick-and-rolls, back cuts, a lot of pin-downs and curls. I expect this team to curl a lot this year, curl off the free cut and then curl into the corner. That's going to be how they're going to make their bread and butter against these bigger teams because they're not physical. The Celtics aren't a physically imposing team when they're driving into the paint. So they're going to need to get creative with a way to free up their um, their jump shooters on the, on the corners, on the elbows. And that's going to be 
how, where we see exactly how far we can push this team, depending on whose shots are falling on any given night. Luckily, we do have probably four or five guys that are actually really damn good three-point shooters. It's just how do we get them open against a team like this? Yeah, and a lineup they ran a lot last season was uh, a lineup with the guy we said we aren't going to talk about, Marcus Smart and Terry Rozier out there all together, you know, the three guards lineups. And they don't have Terry Rozier anymore, so they can't really run that lineup the same way. They could put out there a lineup of, like, Brad Wanamaker, Kemba and Marcus, or Kemba Carson and Marcus. You know, I, I don't know if they would, but I'll be interested to see if they do when they decide to run that lineup against Philadelphia for any reason, you know, the, the ones you were talking about, so that you know, they can get more shooters open and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, so I'll be curious to see if they try to counter Philly's immense height with just going super small and see how that impacts it. Because usually when teams go small, it's because they want to get faster and they want to get more athletic and they want to be able to outrun these, these uh, you know, big teams. But with Philadelphia, they, they don't really present that because, you know, yes, they do, they do run two bigs with Allen and Embiid, I guess. So I guess that will be a factor. But on the perimeter, all the guys are, you know, really athletic. Simmons, Tobias, Josh Richardson, all those guys are great athletes. Even Embiid's a great athlete. So, you know, you know outrunning them isn't exactly, in, in, you know, the reason for going small. But I wonder if there is going to be a playmaking aspect and a shooting aspect. And just to, just to throw off Philadelphia, if you do put three guards out there and how that would work. I don't know if they will decide to do that, but it is a lineup. Stevens has put out there in the past and you know I'm just I'll be watching for it in this game I'll be I'll be curious if he decides to run a lineup like that against this team that's actually a point I hadn't considered up until now uh they did run that a considerable amount of time to begin last year we have a better point guard in Carson Edwards than we did in Terry Rozier um I'm a <laughs> bit of shade throwing there but I am a big Carson Edwards guy at the moment uh followed him for a little bit through Purdue Followed him through Summer League. He's lit it up in the last game against Cleveland. A solid three-point shooter. He's going to have minutes this year. And I feel like a game against Philly may be a bit too big too early for him. So I don't expect to see too much time on the court from Carson Edwards. Unless he starts hitting shots from the get-go. But there is, as you say, there is a bit of a a weirdness in the reason to go small. They're not trying to run these guys off the floor. And I'm not actually suggesting they go small so much as they just pick and roll and switch absolutely they're gonna have to be so active on the offensive end all through the year against teams like these guys Milwaukee Detroit um the Clippers they're just gonna have to be so well coached and so able to just switch it up and call plays out to read and react if a play's not working shout your next play out and that was something that we didn't have last year it was very much oh, this play's gone, play gone to hell. Let's pass the ball to the guy we're not talking about and just let him do his thing. And that was a huge point of our offense stagnating last year. Previously, when we had a guy like Isaiah Thomas, if play one didn't work, we'd go to play B. If play B didn't work, it's back to play A. And then if all else fails, we've got Isaiah Thomas to go and do his thing. And that predicated a lot of wins for the Celtics. So I'm hoping we can kind of get that feel going again. But this time we can lean on Gordon, we can lean on Kemba, we can lean on Jason. Philly's going to be a great test. It's actually a really good game one as a benchmark to see how far they've come over preseason and how far they have to go if they do want to make this playoff run. Yeah, and I'll also be interested to see, you know, we saw in the preseason how good the Celtics ball movement was and, you know, how they moved it around the court and got open shots. And, you know, they forced teams to switch a lot. So I wonder 
how good uh, Embiid, Horford, and Tobias Harris are going to be at closing out on shooters. Because if you do stretch the floor on those guys and they do get confused defensively, are they going to be are they going to be fast enough? Quite frankly, are they going to be quick enough to close out on shooters? Or, or shooters or are the Celtics going to get a lot of open shots? And I think that's kind of what you were talking about too is just you know get, getting you, you know working on the perimeter and that's I, I think I'm, uh, you've convinced me you've convinced me that yes Philadelphia's perimeter defense might be a work in progress might be a little bit shakier than I kind of was uh, thinking going into the season and I you know it'll be interesting to see is uh, the Celtics are a good team to test that because the Celtics are going to be a team that has a lot of shooters and a lot of wings that are going to stretch the floor against players on Philadelphia that you know, are a little bit slower, are, you know, are a little bit bigger, that a little bit more, you know, you know, guys that are fours and fives more so than threes and twos. So I'll be interested to see if that ends up playing itself out and the Celtics end up having a, you know, good night from the perimeter and end up having a, you know, great night shooting. So, um, okay, guys, be sure to follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Taylor NBA and at underscore Celtics underscore center. And Adam, thanks so much for joining us. I had a great time talking Celtics with you and hope to have you on again soon this season. Yeah, man, it's been great. Thank you for having me on. And uh, definitely I'd be very happy to come back on and you're always welcome to jump on my show. Uh, been great. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. All right, guys, and be sure, like I said, go follow Adam on Twitter at AdamTaylorMBA and check out his podcast because he's been putting out a ton of Celtics content as we get closer to the season. So if you want to get prepared for the season with some good Celtics content, be sure to head over to his Twitter and you'll have a bunch of stuff there to, to catch up and, and get excited for the season. Um, all right, guys, remember you can follow me on Twitter too at KJDLGBS. You can follow the pod on Twitter at Wicked Smart Pod. Check out everything over at Guy Boston Sports. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.